If you're a bona fide member of the Hustle Club or a reluctant one with your dreams and ambitions holding you hostage, if motivational videos on YouTube have become your new anthem, and if you're always looking for knowledge to build better habits, master self-discipline, and get your brain and your body to cooperate as you climb the ladder of success, then you're going to love today's episode. Hello and welcome back to Experable. Today I'm sharing with you my conversation with Dr. Jenny Brockes, an international boat certified lifestyle medicine physician, workplace health and well-being consultant, and a former GP. Jenny ran her own highly successful group medical practice in Perth, West Australia. She now helps individuals and teams thrive at work using strategies meant not only to support their health and well-being, but also help them perform in a sustainable way. Dr. Brockes is an award-winning speaker, best-selling author, trainer, and coach. And in today's episode, she shares with us insights on the brain's lazy nature and how to trick it into peak performance, fighting the busy brain, navigating the neurostorms of modern life, and the untold link between emotional health and cognitive prowess, and how to strengthen both. Now, if you're ready, let's dive in. Welcome back to Experable. I'm your host, Krati Mehra. And in this show, we learn from the success and struggles of people we admire and dive deep into concepts that help us expand the possibilities available to us so we can freely, boldly design the life we desire, discover the depth and breadth of our capabilities, access the wisdom available in the world around us, and even on really bad days, love what we see in the mirror. Are you ready? Let's go. All right, so I wanted to start with cognitive health and well-being and an understanding of what that actually means. Cognitive health and well-being is, is a big topic. Cognitive basically means our ability to think. So cognitive health is how well we use our brain, um, but it's those activities we choose to, to undertake that keep the brain as healthy as possible. So well-being is the holistic umbrella term we use because well-being is everything within the body and the mind. It's not just our cognition. It includes our physical health. It includes our, our social health. It includes our spiritual health. So cognitive health is part of our well-being. And it's a mixture of the activities we undertake that keep our brain healthy. So it's operating to the best of its ability, because we all have a certain level of abilities. So it's about choosing to do those things and ask our brain to work in the way that serves us best. Because sometimes, um, especially in this world, we find ourselves living in today where everything is so complex, so complicated, changing so fast. We sometimes ask our brain to work in ways it wasn't designed for. And that causes us stress or distress And although the brain is fundamentally lazy, it tries to do what it can to help us. So (laughs) we have to choose wisely if we want to enhance our cognitive abilities and to enjoy greater cognitive well-being for the duration. Because I see this as something that it's important to do at every age. It's not something that we just need to tackle as we start to notice that we're having more memory lapses or feeling we're not quite as sharp as we were when we were in our 20s and 30s. So it's about something we do 
every single day in order to maintain and preserve what we have for the duration. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, you said something about the brain being lazy. Can you expand a little bit on that statement? <laughs> Nobody likes to hear their brains lazy, do they? <laughs> but fundamentally, our brain, it, because it's such a, um, a metabolically active organ, it means that it actually utilizes a huge amount of energy to work. And so it, and it consumes far more energy um, per capita, if you like, than the rest of our body. So um, it's only got a finite amount of energy it's got available to itself in any given period, which means it doesn't want to waste energy on stuff it doesn't need to do. So it's always seeking to conserve energy wherever possible. So it's set up ways to help us with this because we are being bombarded with all this information 24-7. You know, we can't stop all this sensory input. It's just uh, incessant and huge. And so the brain has a number of filters to help us to disregard, which is actually what is less relevant to us at any given moment, so that we have the capacity to deal with those things that are more important to our safety, our security, and our ability to undertake a task. Um, and to ensure that when we are paying attention or doing something that requires more in some way, that we're not wasting that energy. So our, when I say it's lazy, it's really looking for ways to not have to do things that it doesn't really need to do. Okay, a lot of these coaches who work in the productivity uh, area, they often talk about how your brain will do anything uh, it has to do to stay comfortable. Sort of like in getting up early in the morning, whenever we talk about it, it's like the brain is not going to, your brain is not going to help you, which means you have to have systems in place. So you have to, before you hit the snooze, you have to jump out of the bed, stuff like that. Care to expand a little bit on that? Give us a little bit of a better understanding of that. Okay, so because the brain likes the status quo, we create habits which actually are energy savers because we don't have to think about how we're getting out of bed, how we're preparing ourselves for the day, how we're preparing our breakfast if we're having breakfast or anything like that. We're doing it on the automatic pilot. So we're not using our prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain we use for conscious thought. It's just stuff we, we do automatically, and that's fine. So that's an energy saver. When it comes to being more productive and you've decided, actually, it doesn't serve me to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning because it doesn't give me enough time to get up, to get dressed, to get ready to go out and catch the bus or whatever to get to work. Um, I've got to get up at 6.30 instead. It's difficult to change that habit because the thing about habits is once they're created, they're in place and our brain loves to go straight to them because it's an energy saver. So in order to shift that behavior, we've got to set a conscious intention to do something differently so that we then create a new habit which supersedes the old so that we then learn to automatically wake up at 6.30 and have a better start to our day. So when it comes to productivity hacks, to get better at what we do is often the first thing is to sort of step back and say, well, what am I doing at the moment? How am I going about setting myself up 
with you know if we've got this massive to-do list of all these things we but all these to do in one day and I'm thinking oh I'm tired before I start it's about looking at it with a sort of systematic approach and saying okay what is really important here I think one of the issues is that we overload ourselves with expectation that we will get more done than is actually humanly possible. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we just do. We've created this, this problem for ourselves where we drive ourselves so hard because we want to keep up. We want to demonstrate our competence and our capability. We don't want to be seen as a slacker. So we drive ourselves really, really hard, forgetting that sometimes we can do so much more by stepping back to say, well, actually, the way I'm undertaking this particular task wastes a lot of time or it's duplicating what I've already done. And that's not helpful to anybody. You're just filling the time, but you're not being productive. So I think it's, again, about reflecting on well, just because that's always the way I've done something doesn't mean it's the best way to do something. But our, we're comfortable with the way we do it. It's familiar. We know how to do it with our eyes blindfolded. So it's about getting out of that comfort zone and saying, this is no longer serving me. I can do so much better, but I've got to set that intention and create the habit with practice knowing that it's not going to be perfect, that it's going to take time because habits never never work to the formula of 21 days. And anybody who says habits can be created in 21 days is telling a fib. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> seems like it, yeah. <laughs> some habits take a lot longer. Some habits are very quick. It depends on the complexity of the habit we're trying to Im- embed uh, and our desire. How strong is our desire to make that habit happen? Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because that doesn't get said enough. And then people, when they run with that little template and it doesn't happen, they don't get the results they, they're looking for, they start to blame themselves for it. They blame their willpower. And then it's, you know, it's like it has a dominoes effect. It starts to, you know, impact your self image. And then you change the goals you set for yourself. It's a whole thing. So thank you so much for mentioning that. And I don't know if this is helpful or not, but, um, Today, this morning, uh, I get up at 3.30 every day, but I think I, I'm i not I'm not well today, so I think I am a little feverish. So I thought I'll stay in bed for an extra hour. I turned off my alarm, and I, just, I was like, okay, I'm going to get up at 4.30 today. My alarm didn't go off, obviously, because I turned it off, but I still woke up at 3.30. And I tried to stay in bed, but I woke up at 4 a.m., and my head was hurting. I got a headache because I was sleeping more than I usually sleep. So I had to get out of bed, even though my body was tired, but my brain was like, no, I don't care. You told me 3.30 every day. No, so now 3.30 it is. Get out of bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so even though I'm so, <laughs> I was tired, I, I could do it. <laughs> That's right. So it's, it's not that we lack willpower. It's just that we set yeah. ourselves up to behave and do things in a certain way at certain times. Of course, we've got our bodies working with a, with a certain number of different rhythms and your rhythm is set up to wake you at 3 30 so even though you're unwell and you think oh I just need a little bit longer in bed because I'm really not feeling that crash hot your body mm-hmm. just well your brain disagrees with you and ding, 
you're awake at 3.30. <laughs> That's normal. Yeah. And uh, you're wishing that your brain would, would, would behave sometimes and help you. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, I think we have to be kind to ourselves and know that, you know, these things don't always happen as we would like them to do. And to, rather than to chastise ourselves and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm clearly no good at this. Um, I've got it, as you say, change everything again, change my goals. No, 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 no. It's about showing yourself some kindness and self-compassion to say, it's going to take a while to change this habit. If you decided from today that you're always going to wake up at 4.30, that's not going to happen straight away um, because your, your system is so wired to 3.30, it's going to take a little while for you to get used to. And you might have to do it in, say, 10-minute increments or something like that to gradually shift your natural sleep cycle to that new time frame and that and that's true for so many things we set ourselves to do we expect too much too fast and we forget that we're human and these things evolve slowly I mean sometimes we develop terrible habits yeah awful habits and we wish we didn't have them whether it's you know fingernail biting or um, whatever doesn't matter but trying to fight that habit is hard because you have taken a long time to establish that habit. So it's unreasonable to expect that we're just going, oh, I'm just going to paint the stuff on my nails. I'm never going to bite my nails again. It doesn't work like that. We, <laughs> we have to uh, really, 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 as in really want to change. And I always like to get people to be honest with themselves and say, okay, on a scale of zero to 10, how strong is your desire to make this change happen? If it's a 7 out of 10, you've probably got a pretty good chance. If it's a 2 out of 10, it's just wishful thinking. It's never going to happen. It's got to be, yeah. or the psychologists say, it's got to be a 7, an 8 or above to make it happen because you have to have that motivation. You have to have that, I know it didn't work today, but I'm going to try again tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. Yeah, that's actually awesome. And something to ask yourself before you set those goals for yourself, how how strong of a desire do you have? And also, like you pointed out, the complexity of the habit you're trying to establish and also the habit you're trying to change, how deeply ingrained that ha- that old habit is. So I think that, that we should keep that in mind. It will bring a, a lot of ease to this process that we are all of us are engaged in. Like literally everyone in the world is trying to get some new habit, uh, get rid of some old habit. So I think this is massively helpful. There's something else I would want to ask you, what you shared about our brain having limited energy, which makes total sense. And our brain's um, sort of inclination to save energy or not inclination, but our brain's dedication, in fact, to saving energy. Then whenever you, with all of your knowledge and your experience, when you hear people say something like, I'm going to make this happen, like these very, very determined uh, people who are engaged in this this sort of this lifestyle where they are they want to create all of their dreams and turn them into reality. And they're like, I'm going to work 18 hours a day if that is what it takes. I'm going to work you know, over the weekends. I'm not going to give myself a break. I don't care. I'm the first one in, last one to leave. Do you think that that is a healthy approach? What do you think about that? Like these people are so, I I know that this system works because clearly there are people who are doing it. Like I know there are CEOs who are in their 70s who are still working 18, 14 hours a day, 12 hours a day. But from a health perspective, from a productivity perspective, from a longevity perspective, what do you feel when you hear these things? 
I'm I'm really worried when I hear that. I'm so worried because for me, it's the shortest route to an early exit from this life. Essentially, wow. When we when we overcook ourselves, we burn out. So for sure, we can step up in the short term to, you know, we've got something really big on and we've got to spend extra hours and extra effort and we do that. We step up and we do it because we can and we really want to. But for somebody who's trying to set up a business or to create something that they want to have for a duration, it has to be sustainable. Yeah. And to operate in a way that is insustainable is totally nonsensical to me. So from a health perspective, it's awful. Um, There are a number of different cultures around the world. Um, I was brought up with a very strong Anglo-Saxon perspective on how you should work. I was always taught that in order to succeed in life, you had to work hard and then work some more. You had to work (laughs) harder than everybody else. So like you said, you come in the first, you're the last to leave. But it takes absolutely no um, account of what that does to us as human beings. We're human. We're not machine, but we treat ourselves as machine. And if if we set that expectation on ourselves or somebody else puts that expectation on us, whether it's cultural or parental or whatever or societal, then we're putting ourselves under this increased pressure which creates what they call well, we call it stress, but it's a change in our allostatic load, which basically means we get worn out more quickly if we are driving ourselves too hard. It's the same as if you're driving a car. If you have a car and you look after it, you put the oil and the fuel in and you do all the maintenance that's required to keep that engine running smoothly, that car will serve you for a long time. But if you just put your foot to the floorboards and just drive it hard, it's Something's going to give. And unfortunately, that's us. Some cultures actually have a term for death from overwork. In Japan, it's been such an issue that the government has put legislation in place to try and encourage people to not overwork. Overwork is so detrimental to our health, our well-being and our relationships. When we talk about death from overwork, we know that it affects anybody of any age. It manifests itself either as heart disease causing a heart attack or a stroke or suicide. And the tragedy of of Kuroshi, as it's called in Japan, is that it's entirely preventable. We bring this on ourselves because we're trying to meet our own expectations. I want to be ultra successful, so I'm going to be working so hard. I'm so passionate. The people who are most at risk of burnout of stress-related illness and of mental illness because so much stress can provoke anxiety and depression Yeah, yeah. Um, are often the ones who are super committed, overcommitted, overwhelmed with the amount of stuff they've got to do and they're just pushing on through relentlessly. They've lost sight of the fact that we need to step back. We need to ensure we have enough time for rest and recovery because I think this is the biggest issue we face in our well-being. It's not that we don't know it's important to have enough sleep, to eat healthily when we can, and to be sufficiently physically active. What we forget 
is that we need to honor our bodies and our minds by giving it enough time to rest and restore. And that needs to be something not just as a holiday, it's something we need to include in every single day. I, I talk about mental breathers, I talk about micro breaks, and I talk a lot to CEOs and leaders about this because these are the people who are the drivers. They are driving themselves and driving their teams because they want to you know, get out there and do what needs to be done. And, and it's getting the message across that actually too much work is counterproductive. We, we spend so many hours at work, but we know from the studies that, you know, 38, 40 hours a week is plenty. Once we start extending that, and so many people I meet, you know, work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours. You know, like you said earlier, you know, the 70-year-old who's worked hard all his life and still works ridiculously long hours, he's an outlier. Yeah. He survived somehow. <laughs> but he's got somebody to make him dinner. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but for us, the rest of us, we've got to get better at giving ourselves permission. It's about permission first. Permission to say, you know what? I'm not well today. I'm going to have an extra hour in bed. It's permission to say, I've worked really hard this morning. I'm going to take a lunch break. I'm going to leave my desk. I'm going to go away. I'm going to go have something to eat. I'm going to have a walk. I'm going to do something just to give myself a little mental breather between what I've been doing all morning and what I need to do this afternoon. Because the other thing to remember is that our attention, our ability to focus on anything is a finite resource. In any given 24 hours, the amount of time we can spend in deep, focused work is very short. Have you any idea how much it is? How long do you think we can work really in a concentrated, focused way, deep work, as it's called? How long is it in a day? So I would say, like, for me, uh, the early morning hours are super productive. So I sit down at my desk at around 6 a.m. and I keep working till 10 uh, a.m. But after that, whenever I sit down at my desk, the concentration is not as good. So I would say for that four-hour window, but that has taken a lot of hard work for me to cultivate that. So that uh, six to 10 window, that is uh, very productive work for me. That's great. And, and that shows you've got great self-awareness. You know what works for you. You know that you're better in the morning. So you've set yourself up that time frame. So you're ready to go at six and you know that's the time you're most productive and you get more done. They actually say we've only got two hours of really strong focus work Whoa. available to us or focus in any 24 hours, which is a bit like, oh, really? But I'm at work all day. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. So we need to be mindful that uh, we need to replenish that energy. So like for you, you work from 6 to 10 and then you take a break, presumably. Two-hour break, yes. Yes. So that's the important thing. If you know that you're a morning person, and I think a lot of people would, would agree with you that they find they're most productive at that time. So they set themselves up. They know that if they can get through a whole bunch of stuff, that means that you're going to feel better because you know you've got something done. You feel productive. And that's, that's emotionally supportive. We, we feel better in ourselves when we know we've got all that and we haven't been distracted. We haven't had all those interruptions and stuff. But then to also recognize that, hey, we've just expended a large amount of cognitive energy here. And it's unrealistic to expect us to have that 
same ability for the rest of the day. So from 10 o'clock onwards for yourself, you'll be operating, but at a lower level. And that's why it's sometimes important. I mean, it obviously depends on your situation, the type of work you do and the organization you're working within. If you have that flexibility that you can adapt what works best for you. Sometimes we have to comply with what's required of us. But if you know that you're a morning person and you get all that heavy lifting thinking done in the early piece, then you can spend your afternoon in the meetings, which don't require as much cognitive energy. Still need to happen, still need to have those conversations, but they don't require the same level of intense focus. Um, So it's about being mindful, building that self-awareness and, and asking, well, when am I at my best? Some people are better in the evening. Some people work much better, you know, after they've had their dinner and they say, oh, now I'm going to work from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And if that works for them, fine. So long as they're not trying to drive themselves in the earlier part of the day, making themselves work, 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 because their, their system isn't set up that way. So we can, we can work with what we have. And I think we need to just be mindful that it's so important to take those breaks. I, I often find it, well, I do find it fascinating when I hear leaders saying, um, I had one conversation recently with the CEO of a company and uh, we were talking about the need for breathing spaces across the day just to defrag and stop thinking about what we've been thinking about so we, our brain can re-energize. And I said, including a lunch break. And he said, I never have a lunch break. I never have a lunch break. <laughs> waste of time. Complete waste of time. And I said, really? Uh, have you thought that, you know, have you ever had that experience when you have taken a lunch break that you find you're then better positioned? He, he was closed. He was completely closed. He said, no, I would just get frustrated. If you said, Jenny, I have to take a lunch break, I would sit there with my arms folded and be frustrated. And I thought, well, that's not going to be serving a useful purpose. But <laughs> so you, you can only work with what you're open to. And I think that it's the curiosity piece. If we are, if we're genuinely wanting to look after ourselves so we can be the best version of ourselves in whatever we're applying ourselves to, it's about remembering that you know, we are designed not for long-term focus, but for short sprints of focus. Yeah. Do what needs to be done when it needs to be done that you know you're best at and then give yourself time off to rest and recover. And I always like to ask people what they do for fun. Do you have play during the day? And most people look at me sideways and go, Jenny, you're telling me I have to go and play now? And I say, absolutely. (laughs) Why would you not have playful moment during the day where uh, it's a great way of just lightening up a little bit because we know we take life and work so seriously Um, and we know you know children learn best when they are given the options to play and explore and be curious and to pull things apart and put them back together again if we get curious about what allows us to lighten our cognitive load so we're not no, overstuffing this poor brain with more stuff all the time, giving yourselves a break, right? Um, and just letting that that lightness of being come into play. So, I'd be curious to know from you, Krati, if if you have some techniques or things that you do for yourself. 
to give you that little bit of lightness in in what you do? Do you have a, a, a routine or something you just like to indulge in? Tell me, I'm, I'd love to hear. Yeah, uh, for sure. Let's talk about it because that was going to be my next question around oh. this itself. So, so for me, I, I get up at 3.30, I do yoga first, I do 40 to 60 minutes of yoga, then I take a shower, I get ready, and I go say my prayers. And my prayers sometimes go on for 60 minutes, sometimes 30 to 60 minutes. Like today, I had an interview. So today, I was able to wrap up my prayers a little bit early. Uh, I didn't do yoga today. I skipped my yoga today because I'm not feeling great, not very stable don't want to fall and crash into a wall or anything. So didn't do, did do that. I took that easy on myself and did the prayers and then sat down for my interview. But from six to 10, I usually work. And then 10 o'clock when I'm done, I'm done. I leave my laptop at my desk. I go sit at the dining table with my parents. We, uh, like my mom and I, we hang out together for the next two hours while having breakfast and then cleaning up the kitchen. We clean up the kitchen together. That's something else I enjoy. Uh, taking care of the kitchen is some fun for me. Then, those two hours, we have ridiculous conversations. We're laughing nonstop for those two hours. So that's fun. Or we are discussing whatever stress each one of us is facing in our lives. And after that, I'm back at my desk. I study again, um, work again, sorry. And then at two o'clock again, I get up for lunch. We have our lunch. Again, we hang out. We clean up the kitchen. We uh, do the dishwasher thing. And then we're free by 3, 3.30. And then back again at my desk. Uh, so, but 3.30, usually I like to do some reading. So till 4.15, I, I would do reading. Then again, I'll work. And I'll then I'll work till 6, 6.30. And then I shut down my computer. I do cardio. I say my prayers. Then I don't work again for at all. And then I, early dinner, early to bed. Um, yeah, and hang out with my mom a little bit more. Or call up a friend, do a Zoom call. Or maybe see a friend for coffee or something like that. So I think that is my routine. This is... It works for me. I do get a lot done. I think certain days I work nine hours, certain days when the pressure is on, I work 12 hours. But this is what I wanted to ask you. You, you asked for my routine. I, I welcome whatever comment uh, you have on it. I would like to know from you. But also I would like to know, do you think this is this system is healthy where you are? You are pushing yourself. You are working a lot. But you have basically set up a system where you are following every window of work with this dedicated play or this dedicated rest, something like that. Please, um, yeah, I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for sharing that, Krati. I love what you do. I, I am so inspired by your, your, your process, your ritual of what you have set up because, to me, it's, it's recognising that you can push yourself hard, you work hard, for a period and then you pull back to give yourself that time to to rest and restore you have something to eat you're nourishing your body you're 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 hanging out with your mom you're laughing you're you're talking about stuff it's totally unrelated to the work which is the break so you're having that break and i think particularly in this world where so many people work on their own for extended periods of time it's lonely. We do need that social interaction that because our social health, our relational health is absolutely vital to our holistic well-being. And we know that it is the time we spend in the company of others, preferably face to face, 
But if you can't achieve that for whatever reason, at least if you can do it on a Zoom call or something where you can actually eyeball the other person, is so important to reduce, A, the risk of loneliness, because loneliness is a terrible issue that's affecting, it's a global pandemic of loneliness. We know, we know that. And it's bad for our mental health and physical health as well. But having social interaction prevents you or lowers your risk of burnout. That is absolutely critical. The one thing we can do for ourselves is to ensure that no matter how hard we work for the rest of the time, we have that time out to be with somebody that we love or we know well, and we can just hang out with and chill. Whether we're having conversations about, you know, a movie we want to go and watch or something that somebody says was funny, um, sharing a meal, doing the things like washing up, all those things are part of our social network of life. And it's so critical to how well we think, our behaviours. It makes it puts us in a better frame of mind. And if you're in a more positive state, you're opening your mind to think more divergently. You know, you're not so locked into oh my goodness, I've got to do this and this and this. You're, you're more relaxed in your thinking and your approach. You're more imaginative. You're more creative. You're more innovative. Our best ideas don't come when we're no, nose down, tail up, working, 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 working. Our best ideas often come in those relaxed periods where you're interacting with your mum or having a chat with a friend or having a coffee or whatever it is. And they're things that percolate over time. So it's something we need to have as a regular part of our routine in order to stimulate that sense of well-being in ourselves and to open us up to higher order thinking, that, that ability to think outside the square so we don't just get locked in, this is what I do now, and da, 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 and then carry on from there. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And I that has been my experience as well. So I agree with you. But I do know that when, as you were talking about how this is not okay to work so many hours, I know for a fact that there were people listening who were going, oh, no, I'm not going to listen to this advice because my dream <laughs> demands that I work so many hours. So for those people, I think this, what you've now shared I think that is incredibly helpful. So work all day. That is what you want if you refuse to listen to this advice. And if I get it, trust me, I get it. If your dream demands it and if your dream is something you're emotionally invested in, you will willingly risk burnout for it. I get it. But at the same time, what you have offered is a system that will help you do the work that needs to get done, but also avoid falling into that place. Absolutely. And I also feel like that there are seasons in life. There are seasons where you have to work like that, where you have to work like an animal, but that shouldn't be your whole life. You know, if it's, if you have a different option, take it. What is, what is so bad about it? There are people who refuse to work hard at all. And then there are people who demonize rest. I don't what is this? What are these extremes? <laughs> yes. So I think it's about moderation in all things. It's it's honoring what what you have set yourself out to achieve. And I hear you. I mean, yes, if you have a dream and you, you know it's going to take time, you know it's going to take a lot of effort, you know it's going to take a lot of hours, of course you're going to do that. And that's fine in the short term. But it's not fine over a prolonged period of time. And because we're all different, 
it's not possible to say, well, you could do that for five years and be fine, but after that, you're going to have a heart attack. Or you could do that for six months before you keel over. We can't predict that. We're all different. We've all got different circumstances. But we are all subject to the same um, responses that our brain or our body make in in reaction to being exposed to stress. Stress is normal. A little bit of stress boosts our level of performance and productivity. A teacher knows this because a teacher will say to her class, class, we've been learning about um, agriculture. So we're going to have a test on agriculture next week. And all the children go, oh, that little bit of extra stress is hopefully, <laughs> for some of them at least, going to stimulate them to think, oh, I need to go back and, and look at the work we did on the agriculture because I want to do well in that test. Yeah. Some of them will be going, I don't care about agriculture. I'm not going to do it. That's, you know, we're all different. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of stress. For most of us, we'll lift our level of performance and productivity, but we all have a limit. Yes. And if we continue to drive ourselves, we have a sweet spot. And most of us think when we've reached a sweet spot that we can keep on keeping on. And that's the danger. When we're at that sweet spot of, oh, this is so good. I'm getting so much done. That's actually the time to step back and say, do I need to take a break now? Yeah. And it's going to be hard to resist that. I mean, if you're in flow, you're going to ignore it because you're just getting so much done. But I think uh, the risk is as soon as we overextend ourselves, and that's that's a self-awareness piece and self-assessment, and this is where we fall down. As humans, we're not very good at assessing how tired we are. The first insight that we lose when we are suffering from fatigue is just how tired we are, which is why if we've been driving in the car for a very long time, and in Australia we have very long distances to go from one town to the next, you can be driving for six hours. If you drive continuously and you fail to recognise that, you know what, I've been driving now for quite a few hours, I should just pull over and have a break, and you think, oh, I'm only a few hundred kilometres away, I'll just keep going. The risk is we've lost sight of how tired we are and that fatigue means that you're no longer able to use your brain as accurately as you would do normally. So your reaction time slows. You stop noticing things in your periphery. You're much more likely to have an accident and come to harm. And we know that. But it's still hard, even though we know that, to make ourselves stop. Oh, it's only a little bit further and I'll keep going. Whereas really the safe thing to do for our sustainability in the longer term is to say, yep, time to stop, time to have a break, time to have a coffee, whatever it is, and then I'll be okay to carry on. Otherwise, what I see or hear people telling me is that they wind the window down so it's lots of cold air coming in to well, hot air, whatever, <laughs> to try and keep them right, awake. Right. And they turn the radio yeah. up to full blast and there's music. And now I say, you're deaf and your temperature is wrong because you're either <laughs> too much hot air or too much cold air and you're still tired. So the insight into our level of fatigue is the biggest issue. We're blind to it. And the thing about burnout is that because 
the people most at risk, as I've already mentioned, are those people who are so committed, so dedicated, so passionate about what they do that they become blind. I became blind. I was a GP for many years, loved my work, loved my patients, loved my staff, loved everything about it, drove myself into the ground, and I was completely oblivious to it. I was in denial. Of course I'm busy. I signed up for this. This is what I did. I went through medical school in order to become a doctor, to be successful in my practice. I wanted to always be of service to others. I was a people pleaser. I was a perfectionist. I was a workaholic. And it cost me. It cost me my health. I ended up passing out in an osteopath's office who I had gone to see because I'd had chronic neck and shoulder pain for months. Couldn't get relief from it. I'd been to physios. I'd tried all sorts of things. Nothing was working. So I'd gone to see this osteopath who was delightful. And he was attending to me. And then I just passed out on his, on his surgery. I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. I felt so stupid. I came around. Where am I? Oh, oh I'm in your office. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> got my things. Went home. And I never stepped foot in my surgery again. I never went back to work as a GP. That was it. I was done. I had reached the point of collapse because I had been in denial all that time. That burnout had been smoldering and building up. It's like how fire can sometimes get into a, a tree and it's smoldering. It's still there. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes it will then get to the point where it bursts into flames. And that tipping point for me, where I collapsed mentally and physically, I ended up in bed. I could not get out of bed. I certainly couldn't do any form of work. I couldn't look after my family. I had to seek help from a professional. I saw a psychologist for many, many months. I lost my business. I never set out to lose my business. I mean, nobody sets out to lose a business that you have created. Right, of course. It was the love of my life. I loved what I did, but I loved it too much because I forgot that that love for what I did had to extend to myself. I had no time for me and I was blind to it for too long. So huge wake up call. It took me 12 months to recover. And at the end of the 12 months, I was different because I had had lots of time for self-reflection. You know, what happened? Why did this eventuate? What could I have done differently? Well, the big wake up call was... I stopped caring, and that was probably the biggest red flag of all. Because when you care so deeply about the people you serve and work with, and then you get to that point with, ah, I don't want to be here. Yeah. I just want to be somewhere else. I don't care where it is. They're all annoying. All these people around me are so annoying. I've never felt like that before about anything. So something was wrong, but I was still, no. Yeah. This isn't happening. It's all okay. It's just a busy time. It'll, it'll get better. But sometimes it doesn't get better. Sometimes we need, if somebody else isn't going to say, Jenny, what are you doing to yourself? We can end up falling off that proverbial cliff edge of burnout. And, and that's why I think we need to get better at that self-awareness piece and not just accept, well, if you signed up for this type of work, if you set yourself this big goal, you have to drive yourself to that point. No, you don't have to. You can achieve what you want to achieve, but it has to be with balance. Yes, yes. And that's where I think what you shared 
this karate is so important. You found that balance. You could work hard, but you've got that ability to say, now it's time to do something else for a while. I, I wasn't, the question that my psychologist asked me that really embarrassed me more than anything else was when she said, what do you do for fun, Jenny? <laughs> and I sat there in her office and I squirmed in my chair because I couldn't think of one thing I did that was fun. I was so committed to my work, so committed to my patients, so committed to you know, wanting to be the best mother as well to my children and to be the best wife I could be to my husband. I'd forgotten that I needed something for myself as well. So she said, right, she sent me some homework. <laughs> she said, right, before you come back next time, I want you to find something that you will enjoy and that you will actually do. Right. So I go, okay. So I went home from her office. I sat down at my laptop and I Googled fun things to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, bing, all this stuff popped up. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Yes, <laughs> maybe I could do that. Oh, maybe. And then I found the thing. I found the thing that I thought I could do, I'd be willing to do, because obviously you've got to be willing to try it. Right. I thought, yeah. This. And so I went online and I signed up to do this thing. And then when my husband came home from his work, I said, darling, guess what? He said, what? I said, I've signed us up for dance lessons. <laughs> and the look at his face said it all because the way dance classes were set up, you had to take a partner. Right. So right. I said, you'll be my partner, won't you? <laughs> so even <laughs> though it wasn't high on his priority list, he came with me. And you know what? We had the most fun. So I think, you know, we need to remind ourselves having time out for those little things we do that is so unrelated to anything else, but it's just time to be you doing something that you love. And the, and the other thing that I think too many of us probably don't do enough of, and I'd be curious on your take here, because obviously you live in a different country to me, and it's going to depend a lot on climate as well, is spending time outside. It's said that the average American spends probably 90 to 95% of their waking time indoors because they get up, they get ready for work, they get in the car, they drive to work, they're in a car park, they get out, they go to the office, they do their work, and they reverse to the way home. Yeah. And then they collapse on the couch and watch Netflix or whatever they do. So very, very little time, if any, is spent outside. And yet when we talk about um, well-being, and this includes our cognitive abilities, spending a little bit of time outside makes the biggest difference, especially if you've got some form of greenery around you, whether it's a tree or some bushes or some parkland or something, or maybe you live close to a blue space. It could be a lake or a river or the sea or something. Yeah, It's having that access but actually setting the intention to go and be there. There was research that came out of the UK a few years ago that showed that 
in order to feel mentally well, so you're calm, you're relaxed, stress levels are whoo, down, 120 minutes a week. A week is the threshold. So if we can be outside for that amount of time each week, we are setting ourselves up for better health and well-being. So that is equates to 17 minutes and so many seconds per day. So do we have 17 minutes and so many seconds per day to be outside? And if you can't get out into nature, what can you bring in? Because the other thing that is uh, has been shown by the, the studies to be really helpful, if you're surrounded by concrete and there's no there's not a skerrick of anything living outside, you can bring nature in. You can bring you can buy some plants and have them in your house or in your office. And it's been shown that if you've been working really hard and you, you know your eyes are starting to roll a bit because you've been looking at this screen for too long. Um, if, you, if you have a window and there's greenery outside, even that momentary 20, 30 seconds where you physically turn and look outside that window onto a something green is capable of restoring your attention. It automatically lowers your stress levels and you recalibrate and then you're able to focus again. So how easy is that? And that's just a matter of seconds. Yeah. And if you've got a desk and you have a pot plant on it, even if it's just in your periphery, that has a calming effect on you. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And if you're like me, I've, I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb. I tend to kill houseplants quite easily. I tend to love them too much. <laughs> <I get> too <laughs> but um, I do love plants. And, and I've learned over time that spending time outside is, is an essential part of our routine that we can incorporate into our daily schedules to give us that little bit of... Yeah. They send, again, going back to Japan, where they tend to overwork, as I mentioned before. They introduced the concept of Shinrin-yoku back in the 80s. I don't know if you've heard of that term. It, it means forest bathing, but you're not, going out, you're not going out in your bikini into the forest. You're fully clothed. You don't take anything off. It's about immersing yourself in the forest. So they developed this way of taking super stressed executives out into the woods and just letting them wander about. You don't even have to go for a walk, but just spending that time outside because the aroma from the um, trees, the cypress trees and things like that, very calming. Right. And they found that it lowers their blood pressure, lowers stress. They think more clearly. They're more attentive. They're nicer people to have around. Lots of good things. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I agree. Uh, I don't think we spend nearly enough time outside. I don't. Um, yeah, it, it can be a bit of a struggle to break away from that routine and step out and go get some air. Um, another thing that I would want you to add here is, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your story about how you burnt out. That I think is immensely helpful when we hear stories like that. I think it, it reminds us of things that we may be doing that are not so helpful. But I would love to know from you, what part emotional, um, like the contribution of your em the emotional elements in your life to your health? Because I think there are people who are burnt out, but they don't necessarily work too much, but their emotional health is not great. Can we talk about that a little bit? If you emotionally, you're suffering constantly, 
What would that mean for you? So for your health and productivity is concerned? I think that's a great question because I think we underestimate how much our emotional state affects us, full stop, period. And like you say, burnout is something that can develop when we are exposed to chronic severe stress over a prolonged period of time. And that stress can have many sources. If you are doing your work, you're very capable of it, and that's no issue, but you have all these other worries or concerns or issues in your life. Um, Sometimes it's a, a difficult relationship that you have with somebody in the office, somebody you work with. Sometimes you've got something going on with your family. Maybe you've got a sick family member. This emotional burden is something that you don't get respite for or time off for. I was once challenged by a lady because I, I shared that, you know, with burnout, it's so important to take time out and rest and recover. And she said, that's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. You are coming from a place of such privilege. And I thought, what? Mm. I said, how is it a privilege to not be able to do anything for 12 months? But then she, it transpired that she was a single parent of a disabled child. Right. And she had her own cognitive difficulties. She was never going to get time off. She was never going to be able to move away from that situation. That is what she had to deal with. So for her, she had this ongoing emotional burden. So for her, it was about letting go of those things that she couldn't influence or impact. She couldn't change the situation for a child. She couldn't change what was true for her in her own reality. But what she could do was stop fighting it. Because I think sometimes we we get stuck in negative thinking because we, we feel that we, well, we've got no influence or in, impact here. So this is how it is. And I hate it. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And we develop all these negative responses and beliefs about it. Yeah. And that can lead to a downward spiral. We put ourselves at much greater risk of anxiety and depression. So I think it's about, again, it goes back to acceptance and saying, this is how it is. This is my reality. But what am I grateful for here? What can I learn from this? Even though it seems a really dark place that I'm having to inhabit, what is the good? When we can actually tap into those little tiny things which make us feel momentarily better and build on those and and learn to express gratitude for what we have rather than focusing on what we don't have, it eases that emotional burden. It's not easy to do. It's really hard. And I think that's where self-compassion comes into it. And that's where also the social connection can make such a difference where you have somebody that you know well enough that regardless of what's going on in your life, um, when you need to, you can contact that person and you'll know they'll be there for you, not to fix anything, but just to be there to support you. Yeah. Because they know you well enough and they care. And just knowing somebody cares helps us to manage that. And, I mean, we all have different challenges in our life. Life is never smooth. We, we go through phases, as you mentioned before, good times, bad times, in the middle times. And I think we get more out of our life when we recognize during those times of adversity. I mean, goodness me, we've just lived through a global pandemic where we had to draw deep on what we could do rather than just focusing on 
oh my goodness, we've got this pandemic, we're all going to die, blah, 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 and getting sucked down into that negative vortex. We build that emotional resilience by letting go of what we cannot control and choosing to focus on what we can manage. Right, right. Yeah, that is usually helpful. Uh, I would often talk to someone who would come to me for coaching. They're building like a new life for themselves and they're starting from scratch. So they've they've sought a coach that, okay, let me start right. So they'll approach me and six months into that new life, they're still I would still see how much resentment they're holding on to for their former partner, for the life that they had. And I would, at some point, you would just have to put pause and you would have to just say that first you got to get rid of all of this excess energy and emotional burden that you're carrying otherwise it's going to corrupt the good that you're now trying to build i i feel sad for all of these people who you know it's not the physical health it's the emotional health and it's so hard to pin it down and even if you have identified it it is so 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 hard to navigate it because emotions, you know, as people would often say, we don't know how to control them. They're, we're not trying to think about it. It's just there. Emotions are part and parcel of us. Yes. And we can't control which emotion bubbles up to the surface. A lot of people these days train in positive psychology, which I think is enormously helpful because it helps people to learn how to adopt a more optimistic approach to different things. But I think the big thing is to understand that an emotion is basically data. If you have noticed in yourself that you are resentful or frustrated or angry or sad, your body is telling you that and you need to acknowledge it to say, oh, and then get curious. Why am I feeling so resentful? Is it because I'm still really upset with how I was treated by my former partner? Okay, maybe he was awful. Maybe no, they did do things that they should never have done and said things that they should never have said and da-da-da-da. But holding on tightly to all that pain and resentment serves no one. But at the same time, it's acknowledging it's normal to have negative emotions. I, th- I think we can get into trouble when we think that we must always only see the positive side of life, which is, which is a nonsense because we have light and dark, good and bad. So if we are experiencing something to acknowledge the emotion and neuroscientists will say that you know if we acknowledge the emotion and say okay where is this coming from how can i diminish it in some way not to ignore it because ignoring it makes it worse you know yes um, coming from the uk everybody has a stiff off of a lip you know soldier on we don't we don't cry we really <laughs> Right. Sometimes we need to have a really good cry because that lets out the tension and it and it acknowledges that we're upset and we're allowed to be upset. Yes. So I think we need to let ourselves acknowledge the emotion. And I think the other thing here is that we sometimes lose sight of what the emotion actually is. We call it stress. I'm so stressed. I'm so stressed. But what does the stress mean? What is that stress? Is it the emotional resentment or frustration or whatever? If we can get past the I'm stressed statement and unpack it to say, well, what is this? Then it's going to be easier to to not only understand where it's coming from, but actually look for ways to work 
around resolving it as best we can. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Another thing that uh, I would love to discuss with you is busy brain. I think rest is not quite rest if your brain is going a mile a minute. So can you share something that would help people turn that off a little bit? <laughs> a little oh, bit. Yes. The busy brain syndrome. Oh, it's it's awful. It's that, it, and you know if you have busy brain because you're exhausted at the end of the day, you go to bed, and then your brain goes, ding, it's party time. And it's busy thinking about all these things that you haven't finished resolved during the day. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake. Well, I know you'd probably be wide awake anyway. <laughs> Other people who sleep later would be wide awake in the middle of the night thinking, I can't go back to sleep because they can't switch off. Their brain is still Yeah. And, of course, they wake up in the morning and they're exhausted. So, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. So busy brain is an indication that we haven't set enough boundaries on when to stop thinking about the thing that we've been thinking about. So what do I mean by that? This is where the person who's worked hard all day long, and we've, you know, we always set off with our massive to-do list, and we can never get through it because it's too long. Yes. And then at the end of the day, we think, oh, do I stay late and try and do a bit more or shall I come back to it in the morning? So we always have that conversation first. So we're still thinking, we're still thinking. We then go home. We're sitting in the car or sitting on the bus or the train or wherever, and we're still thinking about work. We haven't made that distinction. And then we get home. And even though you're physically present, you're not mentally present. You're still thinking about work. Yes. So your partner says, you're not listening. And you're not because you're still thinking about work. Um, and then you go to bed and you're still thinking about it. You haven't been able to stop it. The only way we can get better at having less busy brain syndrome is to get better at managing our distractions because our brain is active all the time. It doesn't stop at any one time, but we can stop the, the loops, which we go round and 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 round in our heads all the time by saying, okay, what are the top three things I need to focus on today? I know I've got a massive to-do list, but I'm going to focus on three things only. And then it's about corralling all those interruptions and distractions. Because every time we allow ourselves to get interrupted or be distracted because somebody says, have you got a moment? Can I ask you a question? Or they send you a text or they, send, they call you up on your phone. And because you haven't answered the phone, they then contact you by some other means. Didn't you get my message? And all that sort of stuff. We get all these interruptions and distractions, which adds to the cognitive load. So busy brain basically means we've got too much going on in our heads. We can't let go. If we can get better at putting boundaries around, which is what you've done beautifully, about when we start and when we finish and how we transition from work to non-work, because work is only one facet of our lives. Like you incorporate the spiritual side of your life. You incorporate the social side of your life. You incorporate the fun side of your life. You've got all those extra facets, which are so vital to our well-being. These are what help us to quieten all that chitter-chatter, chitter-chatter, chitter-chatter that's going on in our heads. And also to acknowledge that if you're waking up in the middle of the night and you've got that 
endless loop going round. What do I do here? What do I do here? If it's something that you cannot influence or control, why are you wasting your time thinking about it? You can't change it. And that leads us back to that acceptance piece again. So it's about setting really good boundaries and checking those boundary fences regularly because we often let breaches occur. So you switch off your computer at six, fine. But then you may get into a period where you've got more work to do. So you allow yourself to work a bit later. And then get used to that. It becomes your new normal. And then you allow yourself to work a bit later. So your boundary has been breached. Yes. Unless you can say, oh, I need to go back to what I was doing before because this is really important for me. You're setting yourself up for more busy brain. And then we wake up and we don't sleep, all this sort of stuff, and we can't stop thinking about work. And that makes us boring. If all we ever think about is work, 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 we've got nothing else to talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. People are going to look at you and go, oh, well, I don't really want to hang out with you. All you talk about is your work. I don't want to talk about your work. I want to talk to you about other things. Yeah, I think I start boring myself after a point. <laughs> so I, it, at some point, you've got to notice that, okay, just stop. This is getting excessive. <laughs> yeah. And you also have to identify when you're not resolving anything. Yeah. Sometimes we think we can't stop thinking about work because it's it's like the other CEO I mentioned, you know, it's a time waster. You're actually wasting time by thinking about something that you're not resolving. I have a very dear friend who lives in Belgium and she teaches similar things to what I teach. And she's got this lovely saying. She says, we have to treat our brains and our stress like a dog does. So how does a dog treat stress? I've got dogs. Do you have a dog? No, I used to. You used to? Okay. Okay. So when you had your dog, if you took the dog for a walk, what would you notice the dog doing? Wandering around, sniffing things. Yeah. Absolutely. They're wandering about. They're looking at everything. They're busy, 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 nose down on the pavement or wherever, on the grass. Sniff, 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 sniff. They're sniffing everything because that's how they get information about the world. Then they might come across something that's new or different. So what do they do then? There are going to be three things going through that doggy brain. Is this something I can eat? Is it something I can play with? Or is it something that's going to hurt me? And <laughs> if it's something you can't eat, you can't play with, and it could be dangerous, you're going to go away. You're going to leave it. So if we can get better at managing our intrusive thoughts by adopting what a dog does when it's got too much to think about, just say, no, nah, can't eat it, can't play with it. It's going to hurt me if I stick around. Let's walk away. <laughs> and, of course, a dog does something else. Before it walks away, it will cock its leg to show complete disrespect <laughs> to you know, that, that horrible thing that's not worthy of its attention. And it walks off to find another thing. So, yes. I, and I just loved, yes. I loved yes. that analogy. And I thought, yeah, if we could get better at recognising what to spend all this time thinking about, and what isn't worthy of our attention, oh, life would be so much easier. Yes. Oh, my God. This was such a great example. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a fan of simplifying things. 
simplifying thought processes, simplifying yes, no, right, left, up, down, something like that. I know that's not always possible, but when it is, take that opportunity, simplify your life. <laughs> Definitely. Because I think we have overcomplicated our lives by overthinking. Overthinking. I think that is one big issue. We make things far more complicated than they need to be. So I love the fact you say, let's simplify it. Yes, because then it makes it so much easier to see what's actually relevant, what's important, what needs to be prioritized. Yeah, but that requires massive boundary work with yourself. Like in relationships, if someone is causing you emotional distress, you either stay or you go. There is no in-between. And the only in-between is when both parties are working together to create that happy in-between. If the both parties are not working, you go or you stay. Don't keep, like, people are always, I want my dream, but I'm also not willing to work this much. No, but your dream for this to happen by this time requires this much work. No, but I can't. I also want to do this extra thing on the side. And then you also don't want your health to suffer. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. <laughs> in, in every choice that we make, there's going to be a positive and a negative. For sure, yeah. Every choice. Every choice. So if you can see all the upside, that's great. But we've also got to remember there's going to be a downside. So what is the downside and what are you willing to accept? And then get a better balance. Yeah, I think that's that's the important. Yeah, cost-benefit analysis. Cost-benefit yeah. analysis. <laughs> yes, I think there are always absolute choices. In, and always, I always get pushback for it. Life is never that cut and dried. But I think it is. I think it is. It can be that cut and dried. You just don't want it to be. You keep piling on options because you are so used to Netflix needs to have movies, TV shows, uh, cartoons and every like in regional languages and local language. Every it, No, that has never that has not helped us. This this plethora of options has not helped us. Yeah, I think it's it's about going back to our values. Yes. And, and you know, our sense of purpose. If we know what our values are, um, if somebody is breaching your values by their behavior or what, whatever that is they're doing, then, then we have a decision to make. Are we going to allow them to continue to have that negative impact on us? Because it's probably not good for you physically. It's causing you stress. And it's not good for you mentally. And, you know, we all have... Unfortunately, some people in our lives who are toxic. And sometimes these are people that we've learned, we've known for a very long time that we consider friends. And yet the way they behave towards us or when they're with us can leave you feeling uncomfortable. And that discomfort is telling you something, that something's not right. And while it is awful sometimes, and very, very, very hard, sometimes it's time to move away, cut the cord and say, don't keep feeling sorry for them because they're dealing with all their stuff. Don't take on the guilt that you're carrying because you're worried that you know they won't be able to manage if you're not there. They're sucking you dry. And if they're sucking you dry, you're not going to be able to live your own life to the you know your own full ability. And you're not going to achieve your dream because you're focusing on all this other stuff. Somebody shared with me that <laughs> he and his wife sat down and went through their uh, list of contacts and 
together, they worked through and looked at the people they knew and said, is this somebody who adds to our life that we love to see, that we enjoy keeping in contact with? They were put into one group. There was one group where it was sort of neutral. It was neither a plus or a negative. They were there, but, you know, there wasn't any. And there were some who basically they stayed in contact with because they felt they had to or ought to or should, you know, all those warning words that we sometimes have. And you know what? It's all one way. They're always taking from us. There's never any give back. They will talk incessantly about themselves and never ask one thing about us. Yeah. And they decided that they would no longer stay in contact. They didn't say, we're never going to talk to you again. They just said, okay, just reach out in the way that it would do before. And they said it was really interesting that they, they just naturally fell by the wayside. Now, that's not going to happen in every case. There are going to be some needy people who will come back I haven't heard from you. What's going on? But I think sometimes we take on other people's stuff that we don't need to. Yes, for sure. And it's not easy to say, you know what? I've listened to your same story for five years. It's not changed. We haven't moved. We're not going anywhere. I'm not sure I can support you in this anymore. Yeah, usually those people, I, I am very blunt. So I usually, when I notice strike one, strike two, strike three, tough conversation. And those people, those who are going to change will change. And then they end up becoming the most pleasant of friends uh, or they'll just yes. leave. Because sometimes they don't have the insight. If they don't have the insight that their behavior is causing you distress in some way, they can't change. Sometimes we need to be shown or, and unless we ask, we're never going to know either. And that's why I think, you know, when we're in business, it's really important to get that feedback from other people that we work with or work for to say, well, how do I come across? Because sometimes we think we're presenting in a certain way and we might be doing something that they don't see in the same way at all. And if, if you're wanting to grow and get better, that feedback is gold. It's absolute gold because then you can do yes. something about it if you want to. Well, what do you know? We've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today, for supporting the podcast and for sharing your time with me. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show on whatever podcast platform you love. You can also watch the video version of the interviews and most of the solo episodes on my YouTube channel. Link is in the episode description. Now, if you made it this far, you must love the content at least a little bit, or maybe you just like hanging out with me, or there was something in this particular episode that resonated with you. Or maybe it's all of those things. I would love to know. So if you've got a minute, it will be great if you can drop a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can send me your thoughts on the show via email. Now, if you want content that goes deeper than even the podcast does with a lot of real life stories, one-on-one -on -one interactions, or just become part of my tribe, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. The link is in the episode description. Once again, thank you so, so much for sharing your time with me. Take care and I will be back soon with the next episode. Mm -hmm.